are approaching the uh, Christmas day that we would digress a little from our study in Exodus and come look at a Christmas uh, a Christmas topic concerning the incarnation obviously so I w- want today to turn to Philippians uh, chapter 2 Philippians chapter 2 one of the most important passages dealing with the incarnation that you will find in the entire uh, New Testament Scriptures. Now, this is not the Christmas story. Uh, We don't have any attention here given to the details of the uh, narrative concerning the birth of Christ. But Paul brings our attention directly and squarely to the theological implications uh, of the Incarnation, and particularly in verses 6 uh, through 8, uh, we have the whole history uh, of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ uh, crammed into those very few statements. And then beginning at verse 9 through verse 11, uh, the result of that Incarnation as we now move from the humiliation of Christ right to his exaltation. So it is a most profound uh, passage theologically. But in typical Pauline fashion, and I think this is one thing that will do us good always to remember, we try to keep this focus uh, before you constantly, that theology, uh, even the most profound doctrines that we can consider, uh, are never given in isolation Uh, They are never given in independent entities that are just there to increase our theological understanding uh, or to give us more intellectual insight into truth. Uh, That's not why God reveals even the most profound doctrines in the Word of God. Uh, But they are always to have direct bearing and influence upon the lives that we live. Uh, And I think it's certainly remarkable, and I don't want to spend... a a lot of time here on the context, uh, but I do think it is certainly significant that in this great uh, statement concerning the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, uh, that it is put within a very specific uh, issue that Paul was addressing in the Philippian church, and that was the necessity uh, of unity uh, and the enjoyment of unity uh, among the people of God. Uh, I don't know what the particular situation was. There was seemingly something there that was causing some at least difference of opinion and friction uh, in the assembly. Uh, And Paul brings them squarely to look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And if we contemplate Christ, if we look at the example of Christ, if we have the same mindset as Christ, uh, then the whole issue uh, is going to be resolved. Uh, Let's pick it up right at verse 1. Uh, if there be any consolation in Christ. And the uh, particular word, if there, this is one of the interesting things I think you'll find uh, about this word, if, it has different senses uh, depending upon what the particle is. I won't go into all the technicalities there, obviously. Uh, But I think we could well translate this particular if as since. As since. This is not a hypothetical Uh, condition here. Here is something that Paul is assuming as actual 
uh, fact and statement. So let me translate it in that way. Since, therefore, there is consolation in Christ, since there is the comfort of love, since there is this fellowship of the Spirit, since there is uh, these bowels and mercy. All right, so here are all of these givens. All right, this is not hypothetical. Uh, this is not something that uh, could possibly be. Paul is stating these as assumed facts. So on the basis then of these assumed facts, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And there's the great formula for unity. That's the formula for unity and peace and harmony within the body of Christ. Uh, it's the formula and peace for unity in the home, uh, and I dare say in every other relationship that we can think of. Uh, if we esteem others more highly than we esteem ourselves, uh, if we are more concerned about the welfare and the interest of others than we are ourselves, uh, I don't think we'll have any problems uh, knowing the enjoyment of peace and harmony uh, in the body of Christ. Uh, it is usually, and I dare say it is always, uh, when self-interest uh, takes predominance uh, and we have the assertion of self and the demand for our own rights, that there is going to be that which then uh, brings division and harmony and dissatisfaction uh, in the body of Christ. So if there is to be peace, if there is to be unity, uh, let everyone here think more highly of everyone else here than you do yourselves. Uh, and that then is the command that Paul gives. Now, he draws our attention then to the example of Christ. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the mind that we're talking about here? We're talking about that mindset that uh, sees self uh, as insignificant, as it were. Uh, that mindset that is more concerned about the welfare and uh, the interest of others than we are ourselves. And what a classic example uh, the Lord Jesus is of that. So Paul brings now this great issue of the incarnation uh, to bear upon this very practical matter uh, as far as the church uh, is concerned. Now, that brings us then to the issues at hand. Uh, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now the exaltation. On that basis, because of that, here is the earned exaltation. And we emphasize uh, that the exaltation of Christ, beginning at the resurrection, and evidenced in the ascension, uh, and now continuing in the session of Christ at the right hand of God, uh, is all an earned, uh, an earned exaltation uh, that by virtue of his humanity and by virtue of the obedience of that humanity, uh, he earned before the Lord. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But we begin with the humiliation. And uh, the truth of that great catechism question, I think, is so very evidently set forth in uh, verse 6 and verse 7 particularly. Uh, it's a catechism question that we have reviewed here over the course of the years. Uh, it's one that I think in many ways is my favorite question. Uh, and I refer to in many contexts every chance I get. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Uh, what a statement that is. The eternal Son of God. Never a moment uh, if I can even speak in terms of moments in regard to eternity, uh, and this always boggles my mind, I must confess an absolute ignorance uh, when it comes to even beginning a description of eternity. Uh, how do we talk about eternity past? How do we talk about eternity future? How do we talk uh, about moments of eternity? Uh, for eternity is the absence of moments. Uh, it is the absence of time. Uh, it is that constant, eternal, unceasing, unchangeable present. Uh, but that's eternity, being the eternal Son of God. Uh, never a moment then when Jesus uh, Christ, when the second person of the Holy Trinity, uh, was not everything that God is. Uh, the old confessions uh, described Him as very God of very God. Uh, everything that God is in His eternal perfections, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity is, uh, who being uh, in the form of God. And Paul here in this text uh, highlights that essential truth concerning the eternal existence uh, of the Son of God. Uh, the word being here uh, that uh, is translated as such in our authorized version uh, is not the normal word. It's not the simple word for being or to be or is. Uh, this particular word uh, draws attention uh, to the previous existence of something and the continuing existence of something uh, who constantly, who previously was, who now is uh, in the form of God. The word form here, uh, don't misunderstand that. Uh, we think of form as that which represents something perhaps. Uh, that's not this word. Uh, this word has the idea of the essential nature of something. Uh, who being in the essential nature, here is the expression of the essential nature uh, of everything that God is. Uh, well, that's Christ. Uh, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery uh, to be equal with God. There are various uh, suggestions here as to what the logical relationship is. Uh, between those two statements. Uh, I don't know how many commentaries I've read on this. I don't know how many translations I've seen that try to incorporate this uh, into the uh, translation, but they often do it like this, uh, taking that as a concessive idea. Uh, who, although being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, in spite of the fact 
that he was the very essence of God, did not regard it uh, as robbery to be equal with God. And I dare say that's the most common interpretation of this uh, that I think I've ever seen. But for the life of me, it makes no sense to me. Uh, and I, I reject that particular relationship. Uh, I, I would rather submit here that it's a causal idea. All right, I want you to see this. Here is the cause, a cause-effect relationship. Let me translate it in this way. Who, because he was in the very essence of eternal God, who because from uh, all eternity he is in the very essence of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be sought after. The word robbery here uh, is literally the idea of seizing after something, of grasping after something, uh, trying to attain something. Are you with me here? So because he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be sought after. He did not regard equality with God something that he had to strive for uh, or attain because he was God. Because he was God, that was not something that he had to do. Uh, the equality with God is something uh, that was his uh, by very definition, if you will. Uh, it was something that was his by the very nature of who uh, he eternally is. So the life of Christ was not trying, as it were, to attain, uh, attain deity uh, or attain equality with God. Uh, on the contrary, and here is the point that Paul is going to make here. We have a statement of that eternal glory uh, of the second person of the Holy Trinity. Uh, that in eternity, that from eternity, here is that one who is in the very essence of God. Therefore, not striving to be God, not seeking to attain equality with God. That was unnecessary uh, because from all eternity, uh, he is very God, a very God. Uh, so, uh, a powerful statement here of that pre-existent, do I say that, the pre-existent in regard to the incarnation, uh, the pre-existence in terms of time uh, of the second person of the Trinity, uh, everything that God is, the Lord Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus is, and I'm using the term uh, Lord Jesus here uh, to designate the second person of the Holy Trinity. Uh, Jesus, obviously, is the human name, uh, the human name uh, of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son of God. I can't really, uh, in, if I'm going to be theologically precise, huh? I, I can't be talking about uh, Jesus the Creator. All right? Jesus is the term that is particularly associated with his humanity. He was born, and you will call his name Jesus because uh, he'll save his people from his sins. Uh, it's a term that is linked particularly to the Incarnation. The Incarnation is not eternal. Uh, there was a time when he became, uh, when the second person of the Holy Trinity became Jesus, if you will. He became the Son of God, became the Son of Man. Uh, not eternal Son of Man, uh, but indeed eternal uh, Son uh, of God. Uh, so here is, I say, this great statement of the absolute glory and majesty uh, that belongs to uh, our blessed Savior. But, but, he made himself of no reputation. Uh, this, again, is a passage that is filled with theological controversy. Uh, 
this verb that the authorized version translates as making of no reputation uh, is often translated to empty. Uh, this is we often refer to this. You hear this referred to as the kenosis passage. Uh, the kenosis passage, the verb kanao, sometimes means to empty, you see. Uh, and they want to translate it then in this sense. But he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Uh, and that has, again, generated uh, all kinds of attempted explanations of what takes place, what took place uh, in the incarnation. Here is the eternal Son of God, and now we are told he emptied himself. And that raises the question among theologians of what did he empty himself of? You see, What did he empty himself of? And we try now to speculate and we try to reason of everything that he emptied himself of uh, in, in terms of God becoming flesh, God being manifest in the flesh. Uh, and uh, it, it uh, leads to some very strange notions uh, at times. Uh, I, I think the most, uh, one of the most common ones that I hear is something like this, that he emptied himself uh, of the independent exercise of his divine perfections. All right? The independent, what in the world does that mean? Uh, that, that he didn't act like God unless he got God's permission to act like God? I don't know what that means. Uh, the independent exercise. There was a humiliation and there was in that messianic office, and again, this is, this is so deep I'm floating right now. Uh, th th there was a messianic subordination. Uh, he was the servant uh, of the Lord, and that has, I say, multiple implications and applications. Uh, but I, I, I dare say uh, that he did not empty himself of divine perfections. Uh, as soon as he could get rid of a divine perfection, he got rid of being God. You understand that? Uh, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those are essential truths about God. Uh, and if there was something then about Jesus, about his deity that he gave up, uh, then at that point uh, he, he ceases. Uh, he ceases to be God. Uh, and one of the, one of the peculiar uh, truths about God is that he is absolutely independent. Uh, God is absolutely independent. Uh, he is unaffected by anything outside of himself. The absolute independence of God. Uh, and it, that, I, I say, is one of the peculiarities, therefore, of Jesus uh, as the eternal Son of God. Uh, it, it gets its way. We, we, one of my favorite uh, hymns of Wesley. Uh, he, he, he's got that line, right? He emptied himself of, what is it he said? He emptied himself of all but love. That's nonsense. All right? That is nonsense. Uh, and this is one of the few, uh, this is, by the way, one of the few good editing jobs that our hymn book has done. Uh, our, our hymn book there puts, he emptied himself, you know what it says? In matchless love. That's okay. All right? He emptied himself in, in matchless I, li I like that. Uh, but he didn't empty himself of everything but love. The implications of that are profoundly wrong. Uh, nice tune, and it fits the, but, but it, it's bad theology. Uh, at that point. Uh, so, you know, always saying that in matchless love, that works very nicely. Uh, didn't empty himself of anything. All right? And this is the thing that, per that, that, that amazes me here. Let's let the text speak for itself. All right? Let the text speak for itself. To ask ourselves, what did Christ empty himself of, is the wrong question. All right? It's the wrong question. 
when the text tells me exactly how he emptied himself. And here's the mystery uh, of, of this incarnation. He didn't empty himself by getting rid of something. The text makes it very clear that he emptied himself by what? Taking to himself something. Right? Not by getting rid of something, but by taking to himself something. Uh, and even the form of this verb. Again, I'm not going to uh, go into all the technicalities of the grammar, but uh, there's a particular construction. If this verb uh, occurs with a certain construction, it means uh, what the authorized version really has done, uh, has done well. Now, that's not a literal translation, but it gets the idea very nicely. Uh, he humbled himself. All right? he, he made himself of no reputation. It's the, it's the act of humiliation. All right? it, it, it speaks of the humiliation. And, and this is the first thing that I want us to uh, see concerning the very fact of the Incarnation. Uh, we, we think of the humiliation of Christ very often in terms of the passion uh, of Christ as we come to that last week when he is buffeted uh, by, by, by wicked men and he's tried unjustly and he's scourged and, uh, and, and we see him uh, naked there upon the cross and, all, and, and what the, the depths of humiliation, I don't minimize that, you understand. Uh, but we make a, a huge mistake. Uh, if we reserve the humiliation of Christ to the Passion Week and those events leading up uh, directly to the cross, the very fact of the Incarnation, the very fact of the Incarnation was an amazing, uh, incomprehensible condescension uh, of the God of glory. Here is that one. This is why Paul begins where he begins at verse 6. Uh, here is that one that is all glorious. Here is that one that is eternal deity. Here is that one that is God uh, himself, uh, but but he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. Here is this divine willingness. Uh, here is the now the exercise of his divine election, his eternal election to be the redeemer uh, of God's people. Uh, he humbles himself by taking the form of a servant. By taking. So we have here the means. How is it? We have a series of subordinate statements uh, that tell us exactly how it is that Christ humbled himself. By taking the form of a servant, by being made in the likeness of men, by being found in fashion as a man. Here is the way he emptied himself. By taking to himself our nature. By taking to himself now a real humanity. Uh, and I, I, again, this to me is the most profound of all theological truths. Uh, that defies definition. And I don't begin to offer a definition or an explanation uh, of, the, uh, of, of the simple truth of the Incarnation, that God was manifest in the flesh. How that happened, the mechanics of that, we can't begin to explain. Uh, how we have that, uh, that combination but without any fusion. We talked about this. You go back to what we discussed in the, in, in the confession earlier uh, concerning the nature of the incarnation. How are these two natures brought together in a single person without confusion, uh, without confusion, without fusion uh, of, of those natures? It's not that the... Uh, right? We, we contend here that it is not that the divine nature of Christ was in some way humanized. Uh, or that the human nature was in some way deified. No, 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 there is no fusion. That is, uh, that is, is heresy. Uh, 
to see any kind of fusion or confusion of those two natures. But yet in one person we have the two. How did the, confession, the catechism state it? In two distinct natures. In two distinct natures. Uh, but yet united into one person. Uh, again, let, let this sink in. We're talking about Christmas, and I say there's more to this than just uh, the narrative of a babe in a manger, as profound as that is. Uh, and, and you think of that. This, again, just boggles the mind. How is it that God became, uh, that God became flesh? Uh, what, what condescension? Here's the Creator. Uh, here is the Creator of the universe. Here is the Creator of all things, and He becomes an embryo uh, in a womb of a virgin. Uh, and He is born, uh, going through all of the growing processes that any other embryo would go through, and He comes to birth, uh, and just a helpless infant, there He is. Uh, and that helpless infant, uh, Isaiah says he grows up before him as a suckling. Authorized version takes it as a tender plant, which uh, is okay. Uh, but it's the idea of a suckling. It's a term that describes an infant. How helpless is an infant uh, for everything, for all of his sustenance, for all of his growth, for all of his livelihood. And here is the eternal God. Uh, what a humiliation this is to become just a suckling, uh, just an infant uh, that grows up in such an unpromising and un unlikely place. What humiliation. Uh, what humiliation. He took upon himself uh, the form, uh, the form of a servant uh, and made in the likeness uh, of men. And again, we, we have here the full, the full humanity, uh, the absolute full humanity, uh, everything that man is. Uh, now Jesus Christ uh, became uh, not, not a deified humanity, as I emphasize, but a real humanity. Now, uh, it is the ideal humanity. Uh, it is the pre-fall humanity. Uh, again, I, I know we have addressed this before, but uh, why, why is it? Uh, why is it that the humanity of Christ uh, is not affected and not tainted with the same sin and same original depravity that you and I uh, are tainted with. Uh, go back to what we discussed earlier. I want you to learn to plug in all of this theological stuff all right, that we've addressed. Plug it all in here. This is not in isolation. Uh, understand what we've discussed earlier concerning this federal headship. Right? God has established two men as the heads of the race. Uh, and He will deal with all humanity in terms of those two heads. Uh, Adam the head and Christ the head. Uh, of two races, uh, and so established that Christ is not uh, under the headship of Adam, uh, a separate independent. He's the second Adam. Again, see what Paul says in Romans and Corinthians. Uh, and I say, therefore, in many ways, and, and this this boggles the mind. We talk, we try to contemplate the humanity of Christ in, in relationship to ours. Uh, and, and I submit to you that in many ways, uh, the humanity of Christ was more real than our humanity. Uh, the humanity of Christ uh, was pre-fallen humanity. Uh, it, it was that humanity that was ideal in every way. Our humanity, uh, humanity that was made in the image of God, has been impaired by sin. Uh, our, be, our humanity is not, uh, is not the pristine, the ideal, the pure humanity that was created, but Christ was. Uh, and I say His humanity in many ways 
uh, is more real than ours, unperverted. Uh, but it was a real, absolutely real uh, humanity. And what humiliation that was for the eternal God to take to himself uh, this likeness of men uh, in the form of a servant. Uh, highlighting here again, this obviously is a term of great humiliation. Uh, 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 an honorific title, uh, when we think of the servant of the Lord, and again plug in what you know, uh, from previous theology, how Isaiah establishes this truth of the servant uh, of the Lord. Uh, that is an honorific title. Only those that stand in a very special relationship with God are designated as the servant of God. Uh, but yet, uh, at the same time, it speaks of that subordination. And it speaks of that absolute, uh, that humiliation. Uh, as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, voluntarily... Uh, submitted himself as the servant of God uh, to this whole work of messianic redemption to be the prophet, to be the priest, to be the king. All of that is just, is just loaded into that particular word. Uh, have to plug all of that in and see the beauty of this. Here is this mediatorial subordination uh, by the second person of the Holy Trinity. He came in the likeness of men. And then being found in fashion as a man, in the visible appearance, in the visible, in the word fashion, there has the idea of the visible appearance of something now. Uh, in the changeable appearance of something. Uh, in the humanity of Christ, he changed. Uh, he changed, he grew as men grow. Uh, and he obviously bore the signs of age uh, as the Pharisees looked at him uh, and accused identified him as being a man of at least 50 years old, remember. He bore the signs of age. Uh, the humanity changed. There was nothing in his humanity uh, that gave him away uh, as being God. That's remarkable, you know. Uh, there was nothing in his humanity that identified him as being God. I've often thought of this. You know, I've often thought of this. We, we, we stand here, we, we stand here uh, on this side of the Incarnation. We stand here with all of this history now of uh, the church and we have the complete revelation here. Uh, but do you ever think what, what it would it be like uh, to, to have been uh, alive at the Incarnation? Uh, what was it about Christ that would have identified Him to you as Christ? We, we, we live in a day, right, when we, we have all of these self-claimed messiahs. All right? We have people showing up all the time claiming to be messiah. We, we, we blow them off. All right? We just blow them right off. Had we been alive during the years of the Incarnation and looking at the Lord Jesus, looking at this one that was born in a barn, you see, lived in Nazareth just doing carpenter stuff, hung around a bunch of fishermen for a public ministry. What would our reaction have been? What was there about Christ? Would we have blown him off as so many did? As so many did. Uh, who knew the prophecies? All right, they, I guarantee those Pharisees knew the prophecies concerning the coming of Christ. But they blew him off. All right, they just blew him off. And here's, yes, Messiah is coming. We want Messiah, but what about this person? 
justifies him uh, making this claim of Messiahship. And they just blew him off. Now, from a human perspective, I wonder what our reaction, how quick we would have been uh, to, to jump on that little, uh, that little bandwagon, as it were, uh, of recognizing him. Because there was nothing about him. There was not one thing about his visible appearance that gave him away, that gave him away uh, as being the Son of God. Not one thing about his visible appearance that was any clue whatsoever that identified him. Uh, as the uh, Messiah of God. Uh, look at, can, can we just take back uh, to that great passage in Isaiah 53 just for a moment? Look at verse 2. I referred to part of this a moment ago. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Word form and comeliness there are words that are often associated with marks of royalty. Marks of royalty. Here's one that is to be coming as the king. Dr. Kern's last Lord's Day evening, uh, after the choir's presentation. Develop that thought of the kingship of Christ. He's coming as king. The king is coming. Uh, And the Old Testament prophesied over and over again that the king, your king, your king is going to come. Well, here comes the king of glory. But there was nothing that gave him away. There was no marks of royalty. You would look at this one and there was no evidence whatsoever that this is a king. No beauty that we would desire. What is it then? How is it then? What was the difference then in those living in the days of the Incarnation that recognized Him as the Son of God? You know, in, in, in many ways, can I, can I speak here as a fool for a moment in completely human terms? In completely human terms. I think... I think that it took more faith. I'm speaking as a fool. It took more faith to believe in Jesus as the Son of God when He was walking on the earth than it does for us. You understand what I'm saying? I, I speak as a fool. I speak as a fool. What was there about Him? What was there about Him? Oh, a miracle here or there, and all of this was designed to give the evidence, yes. Yes. But do not we look at those who follow... Kooks. Kooks. And there were others in Jesus' day that were identifying themselves as the Messiah. Uh, And and they play upon this. And and they make reference. There were other self-proclaimed Messiah. They were ripe for that in that day. But what? The The eye of sight. And here's my point. It was not the eye of sight that identified Christ as the Son of God, that recognized Him as the Messiah. It was faith, all right? It was the eye of faith. The eye of faith. Now, where does that faith come from? Again, it's not... This is why I said a moment, I'm speaking as a fool. Let's plug in our theology. That faith came by regeneration. You see. That faith came by regeneration. Uh, And uh, when when God opened the heart, when when the Spirit of God enlightened the eyes, uh, then, in spite of what sight 
recorded. They knew him to be the Son of God. But I, I say, let's just put this, if we can, from a human perspective. Uh, there was nothing. What humiliation? Here's what Paul is saying. Here is this extreme humiliation. Had he come uh, with the 10,000 of the angels, there's not going to be any doubt. And you know he comes back the second time that way. When he comes back the second time, it's not going to take a regenerated heart to recognize him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When he comes back the second time, it will not require regeneration to see him. For every tongue is going to confess. And every knee is going to bow that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the glory of God the Father. It's not going to take regeneration then, but it took regeneration the first time. It takes regeneration now. It takes regeneration now uh, to see him. In spite of the humiliation of that incarnation, to be the Savior. And the text here brings us to the very purpose then of the Incarnation. Became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The whole life of Christ. The whole miserable life of Christ. Touched with the feeling of our infirmities every step He took. But everything from Bethlehem to Jerusalem was leading to that cross. It's why He came. That's the, that's the purpose for which He came. To suffer. To identify Himself with His people. To die on the cross. That we might have the life that we enjoy. But the whole focus there upon the obedience. And again, we've addressed this who knows how many times uh, in, in our uh, times together as we think of that life of Christ and the obedience of the life of Christ fulfilling the law made of a woman made under the law all of that is suggested here and that obedience then leading right to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ upon the cross well that's the theology uh, of Christmas uh, that's the reason uh, that's the reason that the eternal son of God became man uh, that the fulfillment of the purpose of God and the plan of God uh, concerning the salvation of His people might be accomplished. Uh, and it is accomplished. And it will be accomplished. And there's not one aspect of that uh, eternal purpose that will in any way fail or be frustrated. And that's why Paul takes us right into that exaltation. That's why I say it's an earned exaltation. Uh, as now we have ideal humanity being exalted. Ideal humanity. Uh, we, we have the ascension of Christ. We have the session of Christ. Uh, there now at the right hand of God. The only person, the only, alter that statement, the only body in heaven now is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only body in heaven. There's humanity there. The ascension was a real bodily ascension. And the accession, when we talk about session, right, I'm talking about that, uh, that, that Paul in, in Hebrews constantly refers to Christ seated at the right hand of God uh, as our high priest interceding for us. We call it the session of Christ uh, at the right hand of God. A bodily session. And it's going to be a bodily Return. Uh, oh, there are people in heaven, right? 
Uh, every departed saint is there now in glory, but they are there in spirit. To be absent from the body uh, is to be present with the Lord. The only body in heaven uh, is that ideal humanity, that ideal body uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's there as our forerunner. He's there as our trailblazer. And that's, that's, that's the significance of the ascension of Christ, right? Uh, by virtue of His deity, the ascension, how can I say this, was no big deal. All right? By virtue of His deity, that is where He is. That is His. But by virtue of that humanity, we have an earned entrance into heaven. Christ earned humanity's entrance into heaven. Heaven is earned, you know. There's not a place in glory that has not been earned. Do we believe in works salvation? Uh-huh. And Christ did all the work, you see. And Christ did all the work. It is through His work. It is through His obedience, ultimately, to death, that has earned humanity uh, that right into glory. And now in union with Christ, here's the beauty of being in union with Christ. Now in union with Christ, where He is, we are. We cannot be then separated from where He is. And, and, and I say He is the trailblazer. In, in that ascension of Christ, that bodily ascension, He becomes our trailblazer, our forerunner uh, that guarantees our humanity uh, to be there as well. And the day will come when our bodies uh, will be in heaven. Uh, and our bodies will be made like unto His glorious body, uh, and there be forever uh, with Him. So, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, offer our thanks uh, and our praise and our adoration for the truth of the Incarnation. We pray, Lord, that we would not be so taken up with the sentiment uh, of the season and the romanticism uh, that becomes associated with even the, uh, the true telling of the Christmas story, uh, that we lose sight of the uh, vitality of this, the necessity of this, uh, in terms of our eternal souls and our eternal salvation. Lord, thank You for Christ. Thank You that the eternal Son of God became man. Uh, thank You that He now, uh, is exalted at the right hand of God as our intercessor and that He will come again. Thank You, Lord, for the faith that You have given to us that recognizes uh, and submits to His Lordship and His Kingship now. Uh, Lord, thank You for Christ. And help us as we come to this Lord's Day, as we uh, think uh, about Your Word and as we come tonight to think uh, in terms particularly, again, of the whole Christmas narrative. Uh, that we would uh, be filled with thanks and praise for all that we have uh, in the Lord Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.